Hey folks, thank you for tuning into the Grad School Sucks podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Matthew Carlson, and each week I'll be bringing you conversations that will help grad students like you survive grad school and thrive in a post-grad school career. If you end up enjoying today's podcast, please leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And be sure to check out the description of this episode for links to everything that we talk about today. Without further ado, let's start the episode. Hey folks, and welcome to the Grad School Sucks podcast, the show for graduate students and PhDs who want to get non-academic jobs. My name is Matt Carlson, and today I'm going to share with you a special episode where I talk with guest Nicole Betts. Nicole is a Senior Research and Insights Associate in the Marketing Research Space in Industry, and we have a great conversation talking about a variety of things, from how data collection and analysis fits into business, particularly in the marketing space, what are some of the big differences between working in academia and working in industry, and what you can do to prepare yourself for a job in the industry marketplace after grad school. This is going to be a great show, particularly for social scientists and maybe some humanities students as well. Uh, We talk a lot about uh, the opportunities in marketing research for folks who know how to work with that kind of data. So here we go. Without further ado to the show, hope you enjoy it. Okay, Nicole Betts, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, Just to let everyone know who's listening, Nicole Betts has a PhD in cognitive psychology, and she is currently in industry working in marketing research, where she is a senior research and insights associate. Nicole, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Excited to chat. Of course, of course. So if you could, is there anything um, that you want to add to the introduction I had? Any uh, places that you want to point people to, to where they can find you or follow along? And then we can jump in a little bit more into what you do. Sure. Um, I mean, I post a lot of content on Twitter mostly, but I'm trying to get into that new Blue Skies app. Um, Mm. And then also sometimes post on LinkedIn. And I work with um, the Altac Chats accounts on um, mostly on Twitter, but we're also on LinkedIn. So you can follow along there. Um, But I think your intro was pretty accurate. It's my current title and my educational background. Awesome. And I will have links to to all of those things in the description of the episode. So if you are listening, you can just scroll down either on YouTube or on the podcast and we'll have links to those there. So, Nicole, tell us a little bit about uh, marketing research. What is that like to work in that? Sure. So um, marketing research or market research um, mostly is just doing research to support like the marketing teams at a company. So I work Uh, really closely with stakeholders really across the company. Uh, So sales teams, um, product managers, uh, and um, the the, like demand generation teams as well to try to figure out what kind of products we need to support with research. A lot of our work is just creating research to help support like product launches or to remind people about some of the benefits or the differentiators of our products and why people need them. So it's a a lot of survey-based research, but we also do 
some experiments and my company we do um, try to integrate a lot of uh, date like outcomes sort of data as well to to just try to demonstrate how our products benefit uh, the consumers in the real world very interesting what percentage of your time would you say is spent on analyzing data versus other activities analyzing data I, I think maybe like 20% of my time is analyzing data versus other things because we also, like, again, we chat with a lot of the people at the company to figure out what kind of research we should do. So there's a lot of research planning and then designing the studies and experiments. Um, we don't typically collect the data ourselves. We usually use vendors to help with that, um, but we still have to work with the vendors to tell them what kind of uh, participants we want and to make sure everything's going well. Uh, make sure that surveys get or experiments get programmed correctly, and then analyzing the data, um, and then moving on to sort of creating the the research deck, which is usually our main deliverable that we can then communicate our research to the public. Very cool. What got you interested in this at this as a career? I heard about consumer insights and market research when I was doing informational interviews with other grad students from my program. So they seemed to really like their work. And honestly, I wasn't exactly sure what kind of research-focused career I wanted. So I started applying to sort of um, a broad range. So I applied to user experience. I applied to just sort of behavioral scientist roles or just roles called like qualitative or quantitative researcher, as well as uh, these like consumer insights or marketing research roles. And mostly it came down to like the offer and the company. I just felt good about this team and they, the this specific team, I don't think this is like, generally applicable to marketing research. They were really open to me exploring sort of more data analytics alongside of the marketing research. So it was an opportunity for me to kind of keep a foot in almost both camps and like maybe um, prep for a data science career if I liked the data analytics side a little bit more than the marketing research. So that's why I, I was interested in this specific role. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, if you don't mind sharing, if we go back a little bit further into uh, your doctoral program, when did you start thinking about your career and what were your initial thoughts as to what you were going to be after you graduated? Yeah, so honestly, I, I, I feel like I kind of fell into academia. Um, when I graduated undergrad, uh, the job market was really, really awful. Like most of my friends didn't have jobs for a good amount of time after. Um, they graduated in 2011. Um, so I got offered a full-time job as a lab coordinator in an academic lab. And so I was just pretty much happy to have a paying job. And I wasn't super sure what my options were beyond that, if I'm honest. Um, so um, I kind of just really enjoyed working as a lab coordinator. I enjoyed uh, doing research. And so it sort of led me to apply to a PhD program and just kind of continue on that path. In grad school, I mostly assumed that I would follow an academic path because that was pretty much, again, the only option that was really 
presented to me. Mm. Um, and if I'm honest, like there was a lot of negativity said about non-academic jobs um, in our department. Um, somebody said that it would be throwing my career away, for example. Um, so I, I, it just seemed like that was the correct, I guess, move. Um, and it was what I was being prepared for. We weren't really prepared to do anything else. Um, so then I did a postdoc and that it was pretty much like during the pandemic when I was in my postdoc that I started thinking like, maybe this isn't the path for me. Hmm. That's interesting. What ultimately uh, informed your decision-making to make the leap from the postdoc towards your new career? Yeah. I mean, I think there are so many different factors. So part of it was just like how academics, like particularly like immunocompromised or people who struggle with chronic health issues, how they were faculty members were treated during the pandemic, like being forced to attend in-person classes once schools reopened, even though they weren't comfortable with that. Um, and I have my own sort of medical issues. So I didn't want to be in a job that would, I guess, be so cavalier about my health risks. Mm -hmm. um, and then on top of that, again, I was battling my own medical issues um, during the time when I was supposed to be applying for the professor jobs. I was like recovering from a difficult surgery and I just like physically could not do it. I couldn't do postdoc work on top of prepping for jobs. And then I knew I couldn't physically attend an interview for like a tenure track faculty position. They were like two day long interviews, like yeah. two days of standing. There's no way I could have done that. Um, and there was also just like some blatant ableism in the, a lot of the job ads. Like you have to be able to stand, you have to be able to lift 15 pounds, like so I think it was mostly that which ultimately pushed me out when it, when I left. Yeah, makes total sense. So now that you've gotten, uh, I, I what I feel like is ample time in both fields, you know, academia and uh, industry. What do you perceive as like the the biggest differences in having a career in both? Yeah. Um, I think it always will depend on what academic job, on what industry job, right? Um, one of the biggest differences that I've noticed from my two examples is that the my current job is just, there's so much support at all the different levels. So in academia, it was mostly like I would work with my PI and maybe one other collaborator but like 90% of the work was really on me. And like the PI was just there to answer some questions and like maybe um, provide a little bit of guidance here and there, but they weren't like that hands-on actively involved in the research itself. They weren't like collecting data or helping me analyze it or like uh, those sort of steps. Um, but I, I've had collaborators at every stage of the research project outside of academia. Um, if I need them, they're always there. They're always willing to help. They are ready to hop onto an impromptu Zoom meeting at any second of the day, again, with to help with any stage. Um, there's, there's just so much support, and it just feels like 
my work is more like compartmentalized into the specific like designing and analyzing the research. And then there are other people who whose job is to do things like um, prep the content for public consumption to make sure that it's on brand for our company to make sure that the research is being communicated clearly and that it's kind of like fun and punchy. Um, and then also people who are there to design the deck and make it all look extra nice and pretty. So it's again, not all on me to make all of that happen. Um, I think that's one of the, the bigger differences as well as just the deliverables themselves and kind of what they, they are aiming towards. Um, mm -hmm. So my company, like our goal with the research is very clear. Like usually it's supporting a product to try to make people more interested in purchasing the product or at least reaching out to us to learn more about the product. Like we have very clear outcomes that we're doing this research for and we can actually like measure that to show what what our research is actually doing. So we know like what how many sales leads we generate with the research. We know like how many new clients we can um, say that we've kind of connected to that research and stuff like that. But with academia, it was like the goal is to create a manuscript and then just see if like people cite that, which seems a little bit less concrete. And also, um, it was tended to be like a little bit more theoretically driven rather than like applied. Yeah, that makes so much sense. So when you were talking, one thing that I was thinking about is, uh, <coughs> excuse me, I think nature does this every couple years, but there was a study in nature that I read, I think from 2021, that compared PhDs in industry to PhDs in academia, uh, PhD holders who were working in those two areas, and they, they looked at three different domains, salary, work-life balance, and career satisfaction. And they tended, of course, it's an average thing, quantitative, but on average, the PhDs in industry had higher salaries, higher, better work-life balance, and uh, higher career satisfaction. Mm -hmm. Would you say that you agree with that in, in your experience and your journey? Yeah, definitely. I mean, my current salary is like over three times what I was making as a grad student. So it's about twice what I had as a postdoc. And I'm at, honestly, a fairly entry-level role still mm. in my company. So there's a lot of room to grow. And I think that that's huge for um, career satisfaction as well, like knowing that I could stay at this company and continue to like do better, be paid very competitively, and also maybe level up in the, in the company, which is nice. And the work-life balance is amazing. It's like every day um, at 6 p.m. I can close my computer some days at five, depending on how how um, busy of a day it is. And we get every other Friday off. Um, mm. Or we have like half days all of summer. There's all sorts of these little perks to like just make sure that we're not getting burnt out. We, we are just encouraged to take time off. It's amazing. Yeah, that's awesome. So I, I want to jump a little bit into uh, more about like how you – the nuts and bolts of how you got this role and then what we could uh, pull out of it and pass on to people who might want to follow in a mm -hmm. path similar to yours. Um, before I jump there, what kind of graduate students, maybe both in demeanor or skills or even like the degree or field that they're in, do you think are best suited for market research or roles in market research? I think... Um... 
like social sciences are pretty well suited for this, especially psychology. Honestly, a lot of my work is designing very simple experiments. Like some people get treatment A, some people get treatment B, and then we ask them questions. Very simple or just writing surveys. Um, and a lot of the work that we do to try to push forward the like narrative in the marketing um, research space is has been influenced by my background in psychology. So I think I had all the skills that I needed to excel at this job were, were, were given to me during like my psych PhD. Any social psych researcher who has done surveys will be very well prepared. I know of a lot of humanities researchers who do well in this space too, but um, they have to gain that, that survey writing skill a lot of the time. Uh, which is pretty easy to do. It's not like a hard skill to learn. If you've done a PhD in the humanities, I think you can definitely train up on that as well. Yeah, that makes sense. So uh, going back to your journey, so you're, you were in the postdoc during the pandemic, is that correct? Yes. And then at some point, you were like, it's time to uh, find greener grass elsewhere. So when uh, do, you, do you recall when exactly you started applying to jobs or preparing to apply to jobs? Sure. So I started doing informational interviews, which is what I think of as like starting to prepare for jobs in September, uh, August or September of 2021. Um, so I I was just kind of, I, at that point, I was not sure if I wanted a non-academic path or not. I was just trying to gather information. Um, so I did those interviews through around November and then in November, I actually did like a short-term part-time contract role doing instructional design work um, mm. because I found somebody who was looking for someone to help design curriculum that was fairly relevant to my interests and my PhD background. So it was just a good fit um, and then a way to like kind of dip my toes in the non-academic world and see what it was like. And also it was pretty high paying, so... I needed that yeah. as a postdoc. Uh, so I did that for a couple of months, um, again, just like part-time. And I started applying to other jobs um, in December. Um, yeah, in December of 2021, I started applying. And I was applying to research-focused jobs because although I enjoyed my instructional design work, I realized that I, I didn't want to do that full-time without doing any research. Um, and I figured if for some reason I hated research, I could always go back to instructional design, but it would be harder to go from a non-research role to a research role than vice versa. So that was sort of my reasoning there. Um, and I applied to, I think, about 20 jobs in December. The job market was hot when I, when I started applying in um, December 2021. People were sort of done with their, their pandemic freezes and ready to hire, especially in the tech space. Um, so I did interviews in January and got started to get job offers like end of January, early February. Hmm. And That's I started awesome. in March in this in this role. Okay. June, Feb, starting in March. And what were your what was your first month or two like? It was kind of relaxing, <laughs> sort of yeah. chill. Um so they had a really useful online course to help onboard people who were new to marketing and um, to the company. So I did a lot of just online 
classes to just, I, I didn't know anything about business or marketing and got a lot of introduction to that as well as my field, which is ad technology. Uh, so there were like several multi-hour courses just to help me learn about that space. And um, there was actually one project that I was assigned to, just one to start with, um, just so that I could get a sense of how we do research in, in my new company. And my manager was really there for me at every step. So every single step of the research process, we'd have at least a quick meeting to touch base about what their expectations were. And then I'd go and, and do that step and then check back in. Um, so it was kind of like a little handholdy, but it was it was very useful, um, and I, I I again had a lot of these skills already. So I think that it was a little it was easy for me, um, even though it was a new topic and a new field. It was easy to apply my skills to this and a very low pressure first two months. That's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, if we could take a step back into the. January, February period when you were applying, doing interviews, getting offers. Do you happen to recall, like ballpark, how many applications you put out, and then when within that, how many, how many went towards interviews, and then within that, if you got multiple offers or anything like that? I applied to about twenty non-academic jobs, and again, the job market was hot when I was applying. Yeah. Um, I got interviews for about fifty percent of them. So awesome. it was really high rate. I think it's because I was applying from an Ivy and having that on my resume. Mm -hmm. It's supposed to increase your chances of um, having the, the, the callback for the interview. So okay. it was just a lot more than I expected. And so the first few weeks after I started applying for jobs, it was just so many interviews, interviews all day, every day. Um, and then I went through the full interview process for, I think, three companies um, and this was the one that I got a job offer for, and it was um, a reasonable enough salary for me, and I also felt good about the company. So the other offers that I got were mostly just lower. Um, it, it was mostly lower, or I, I really didn't didn't like yeah. like it. And then there was yeah. one job that I went all the way through, and I really wanted that job, but I didn't get the offer. That's yeah, right. yeah, that's awesome. Do you mind sharing? Did you negotiate at all with like salary or benefits or anything like that? I tried, um, but I was not successful. So, yeah, um, yeah I did try. Um, I think that they were just already at the upper limit for the offer. Um, so I, I, if I could do it again, I would probably try a little bit harder. But at that point, I was just kind of ready to get out. And yeah. again, the offer was more than I'd ever made. So it, it seemed yeah. pretty good. Yeah, that makes so much sense. Well, 20 interviews or 20 applications turning into 10 that went in interviews. And um, that is great. Just for listeners at home, you may not have that experience. No. Uh, you know, Nicole, like Nicole mentioned, coming from an Ivy League. I think, so I, I want your opinion on this. So you were applying, excuse me, you were applying kind of like right out of a postdoc and then you had this other contract work. So you, you had, um, you had jobs that weren't being a grad student or a research assistant, yeah. basically. Do you do you think? How do you think having a postdoc impacted your ability to to turn applications and interviews and into offers? I think that the postdoc was helpful because you can describe it as a full time research role. Um, 
And again, my postdoc was at an Ivy. So for me, I think it was huge um, to to have that that experience as well. And the kinds of experiences that I had in that postdoc included managing, it it was a a little bit of lab management as well. So there were there were a lot of additional skills that I, I could put on my resume for that, that specific postdoc experience. Yeah. So I think that that was good. But as you mentioned, I also had that non-academic experience. And even though it was part-time and a contract role, just showing that I could hang in a non-academic environment, I think was huge as well. And um, again, just trying to, I, I did a lot of work trying to figure out how to uh, frame that in a way that was relevant in, in a research space. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. It makes so much sense. And I, I had a, a couple people tell me as soon as you get your first industry role, you mm-hmm. know, the second one is like so much easier to get. And I'm still in my first industry role. Um, but I do, it feels like every week there's recruiters on LinkedIn, you know, DMing me things. And of course it was never like that before I got that first role. So, yeah. um, so if anyone is out there listening and applying and hears these numbers and is dismayed, just know, you know, keep going. Um, the research I did showed that it takes a hundred applications to get 10 interviews to get one offer, something to that effect. And I had a pretty, I was right about there. Um, so that's what I've heard from other people as well. Mine is is pretty atypical. Um, I also, I, the Ivy that I was in, we had a lot of people in our DMS, on LinkedIn, even just being like affiliated with the department. So I think that yeah. was also a factor because I was actually recruited for this job, I should mention. So I applied ah. for 20, but this was another job that I did not apply for. They reached out to me. That's awesome. Very cool. Very cool. Okay. So let's uh, go to the, the last part of the interview, which is, you know, tips, takeaways, things you want to pass on. So for grad students who, let's say it's May 5th, the day that we're recording, uh, let's say grad students are applying this summer. What are some things you think they should be doing to maximize their chances of getting a industry job? If there is any chance to do an internship or any sort of contracting role, even if it's part-time, um, I, I really think that that's the b- best thing that you can do, uh, just getting any sort of experience I also did this sort of weird thing, I guess, where um, a couple of grad students and I created our own sort of UX experience. So yeah. we had a friend who designed a shiny app, um, and we did some UX testing on it just to get that experience. And I think that that was also quite helpful. Like, it wasn't affiliated with the company or anything, but we just did we did UX, and we had some numbers that we could we could show for it. Uh, so even if you can't get an internship, maybe there's some sort of thing that you can do like that to just show that you you can do those methodologies and and have some sort of results that you can communicate about. So yeah, hands-on experience is the best thing that you can do. If you can't do that, then I think building your network is the second best thing on LinkedIn or any other profile. Just try to get your name out there, make those connections and um, and you can do this based on individual connections. You can do this based on companies that might be interesting to you. So if there's any com- companies that you like, try to connect with them. Try to connect with their recruiters. See if you can just have a conversation with the recruiter. Even if it doesn't lead to a job, they know who you are. Maybe down the line there will be a job that fits for you. So you can kind of 
um, make those things happen for yourself um, and, and try to just make sure that your LinkedIn profile is fully developed uh, because I think that's a good way to get, get yourself out there and to get recruiters more interested in you. Yeah, definitely. What, uh, what in your experience do you think stands out as like elements of a good LinkedIn profile? Having all the sections filled out is good. Um, and then definitely having all of your skills uh, listed in the skill section. There's this new feature where for each of the job experiences, you can highlight specific skills, which I think is a nice nice way that you can do that. So make sure that you're just taking advantage of that and any other new features that come up. I also think that the summary is super important. Uh, I, I don't I don't know if I have like particularly good advice here, but try to make sure that your summary is telling a story and uh, that it's saying something that's different from what the the rest of your LinkedIn profile is saying. Um, so try to use it as an experience as an, an a way to kind of maybe reflect and draw some conclusions or insights about who you are, what kind of work you do. If you can have a little snippet, a little soundbite for yourself, this is the thing that I'm interested in. Like I'm a marketing researcher uh, that's into concepts and categories. That's how I'm kind of branding myself a little bit. Um, just something to to make yourself stand out and show that you that you, that you really can can draw those insights, I guess, even if it's just about yourself. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I think something that I hear, um, not always explicitly, but is some folks who maybe grad students who haven't gone on LinkedIn or haven't really built it out. I think, I think they, and I didn't know this either. I think there's a disconnect between knowing how important your profile is from the recruiter side. So you know, specifically 90% of jobs are on LinkedIn. And a lot of those jobs, the companies are using um, a paid LinkedIn feature where they basically get to portal in your LinkedIn profile, they can see, you know, do you actually have the skills listed in your profile compared to the skills listed in the job application. And so there are metrics that do impact your ability to be viable for a job. Um, so Exactly like Nicole is saying, I think it's it's so important uh, to actually have those filled out because even if you have them on your resume, it, it's a different thing. Like it serves a different function. Yeah, completely. absolutely. So thank you for sharing that, Nicole. Yeah. Um, okay, so contract work is great. Um, I wanted to go back to that for just a second because I feel like in academia, and this is not my original idea, I think I got this from... Joe or Ashley Ruba or someone like that, but uh, we see contract work in academia as lesser than because we think of like adjunct positions mm -hmm. or, you know, just needing to fill a spot on a grant. But it seems like contract work really is uh, seen so much more graciously in industry. And oftentimes it like puts you a step above if you've done that and not had a role versus in academia you know, taking maybe like a research scientist contract role or an adjunct position might actually damage your ability to move forward um, and get a higher paying title. But um, mm -hmm. it's so awesome to see someone who uh, 
got that contract work and had that uh, continue to build their career moving forward. I'll also say um, quickly that if you're trying to find your first job outside of academia, contract is more likely going to lead to like an interview or an offer. And I think that's also part of maybe why my percentage of interviews was so high, because I did apply to a lot of the contract roles, particularly for UX. And I know a lot of people who did a few years of contract role as their first non-academic role. I think it's a good good way to get your foot in the door. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And then building your network on LinkedIn. Um, this is, I'm sorry, you didn't say LinkedIn. You just said build your network. I put in the LinkedIn part. LinkedIn is uh, great. Yeah, that's, that's honestly, that's how I've, uh, that's how I've done it. A lot of my friends stayed in, or colleagues, I'm sorry, colleagues, a lot of my colleagues stayed in academia or they went to do clinical work. Um, and so, yeah, LinkedIn turned out to be a really interesting resource for me. How do you recommend folks find people on LinkedIn to network with? Honestly, the recommendation that I got uh, is just everyone, just everyone you know. Start yeah. Start there. So everyone that you went to high school with that you don't talk to anymore, everyone in your family, if they're on LinkedIn, everyone that you've ever worked with, just send them a connection request. It's not that big of a deal. <laughs> like, yeah. So just try not to be shy about it, I guess. I connected with literally, I just thought of anybody that I'd ever met. And I kind of started maxing out the number of connection requests that I could send out per week. But that was my goal early on when I was trying to to build out my network, just max it out every week because I wanted to get to 500 plus connections mm -hmm. uh, because it just shows A, that you're a real person. <laughs> yeah. So um, if, if you have like 30 LinkedIn connections, that might be a little sus for a recruiter. And then it also, the algorithm wants you to have more connections and it kind of blocks you out if you don't have those. So just, it, it doesn't even matter if they're in the field or not. And maybe someone that you went to high school with is at a cool company that you didn't know existed and you can find out this way. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So let's say, <coughs> excuse me, let's say, uh, maybe there's some folks in the social sciences, maybe the humanities, they're looking towards market research or some associated roles and they're wanting to apply this summer. What are the top skills that uh, you think they need to either hone or like, you know, elevate in their resume or talk about in interviews, that kind of a thing? Sure. I mean, survey writing, I would say, is number one, that you develop these surveys, uh, that you know how to analyze them is important too. Not all marketing research roles will require you to actually analyze it. Some of it, they'll, they'll hire people to analyze for it. So pay attention on the job apps, I guess, for that. Um, and then the other one is really storytelling. Mm. So just trying to fake, try to demonstrate or hone that you can take raw data and turn it into a compelling narrative and also one that is promoting whatever goal, goal you're trying to achieve. In this case, it would be a marketing uh, sort of goal. Yeah. Okay. Last few questions, Nicole. Um, let's say there's someone on the fence, <clears throat> on the fence between applying to academic jobs or applying to industry jobs. What advice or what uh, insights would you want to pass on to them as they make that decision? 
So um, it's a deeply personal decision to make. So I would just say a lot of it will require self-reflection, figuring out what it is that you really want out of life, out of your career, and how those um, map onto each other as well. So if you are somebody who really wants to live in a specific location, then maybe uh, that, that should that should factor in because mm-hmm. academia doesn't really give you that much control over where you're going to end up living. If you're somebody who um, really wants to do um, some very specific niche research question and there's nothing else that you can imagine wanting to do, then like, sure, you can try to go into academia and see if, if that's the case. Um, but I would also recommend beyond your self-reflection is just learn about the realities on both sides. Talk to like professors at different levels, specifically um, the assistant professors who are new to that role and get a sense of what it actually means to be a professor. What, what do they do on a daily basis? What's their work-life balance like? Um, and then try to just imagine yourself in that role and then talk to people in other non-act jobs about the same things and try to imagine yourself in that role. And I think that's that's probably the best that you can do. Yeah. Yeah. You don't know until you get there in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I originally uh, came to know you through Twitter. Uh, that's where I first started interacting with your content. And I'm just curious, whether it's on Twitter or on LinkedIn, what are some of the things that you like to create content about? And then do you have any, like, memorable pieces of content that maybe went viral or that were particularly meaningful to you? I think uh, the content that I create that most people engage with is about like financial aspects of Mm, academia. So those are the ones that I've had that have gone like most viral talking about how graduate stipends are just literally, they're not enough to live on. And um, it's not you, it's not like your budgeting. It's not that you chose to live somewhere that's too expensive. It's just that they're, they're not livable wages. Um, So just trying to shift the narrative that kind of we were given that it's on us and uh, Mm. they're giving us plenty of money to know that the schools are not actually giving you enough money to live on. They're just kind of outdated in what they think is a living wage. Um, And then a a lot of the content that I like to create is more just about how to get these kinds of roles. So a lot of the stuff that we talked about today are things that I've tweeted about. Um, my pinned tweet uh, on my page is about different types of research-focused roles. And, yeah, I, I like doing long threads with a lot of different options that people can have. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. And, again, um, for folks who want to follow along in Nicole's journey, you can check out her her Twitter, maybe a Sky Blue account in the future. Hopefully. <laughs> um, as well as LinkedIn. And then definitely check out Alt Act Chats on both of those platforms as well. And I have uh, links to all of that in the description of this episode. Nicole, is there anything else that you want to plug or direct people to if they want to follow along or engage with you more? Um, I think that those are the only ways, I guess, to follow me at this point. But I, I definitely just want to plug like informational interviews because mm. I think that's the best thing that you can do to learn. Do, do as many interview informational interviews as you can. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Uh, Well, Nicole, one final question. For grad students listening, what is one thing, either serious, professional, or just fun and carefree, 
that you think grad students should consider doing before they leave grad school? I think internships in a non-academic space, if you can do that, I would definitely do that. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Nicole, thank you so much for joining me today. I loved our conversation. Me too. It's been so much fun. Thank you, Matt. All right. I'll talk to you later. Hey, folks, that was my conversation with Dr. Nicole Betts. I hope you got a lot out of it. Be sure to scroll down and uh, check out her content on LinkedIn as well as Twitter. And if you are ready to go into industry or you want to start planning for it and you don't know where to go next, I recommend you download my six-week checklist. It's basically a free PDF download that lays out all the activities that you can take step-by-step in order to best prepare yourself to get a job right away in industry. It's basically what I did in order to get my first industry job. And again, you can get that for free at the link in the description of this episode. Thank you all for listening, and I'll see you all next week. Folks, thank you for tuning into the Grad School Sucks podcast. I hope you got a lot out of our episode today. If you did, please consider leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And be sure to check out the description of this episode for links to everything that we covered today. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Matt Carlson, and I look forward to bringing you another great episode next week. See y'all next time.